belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for March 14th, 2021 is called Idol of Stasis. The speaker is Tim Holland and the location is the Holland Homestead in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning, Grace Church. Um, My name is Tim Holland, and I'm on the teaching team here. And this last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah, and I'm excited to be be able to share with you guys today. All this judgment prophecy is kind of hard to navigate sometimes, um, wondering how and why God seemingly switched personalities on us between the Old and New Testaments has been a bit baffling. I mean, 400 years of silence doesn't not mean there's nothing there. Um, But where I once saw prophetic judgments and pronouncements, particularly like the ones we're going to be covering today in Isaiah chapters 28 through 35, I saw an impersonal God of unanchored wrath and anger. Like the kid who gets yelled at but pretends everything is fine, always fine, because he loves his dad. I saw God as someone you didn't want to frustrate because you didn't know what to expect. So today's message is a deeply personal one. I always um, lived in the center of the evangelical world. I'm a pastor's kid and understand and know the church. I exclusively wore Christian t-shirts in high school, carried my Bible in my backpack, prayed at the lunch table, and saw you at the poll. My credentials as an insider are legit. Um, At least they were until I started asking questions. It's not a lot of questions, really, just one. Who actually belongs here? Because I started realizing that God's family included a lot more people than I grew up believing it did. Is it possible I might've gotten this thing wrong? (laughs) Simply asking meant I was guilty of everything I could ask wrong. And I was pushed to the outside. I'm not sharing today from a place of hurt, but of love. My intention is not to subjugate and colonize these passages, but to point out how people are the same, deal with the same problems and the same attitudes through all of time. If Israel can waver back and forth, so can we. And the fact that we actually do isn't the problem. It is our belief that we do not that is. So today, my talk, this is a love letter to the church. When the teaching team gets together each week to discuss the sermon, we're genuinely, genuinely excited because of how the text seems so applicable to what's happening today. Then at least one of us is always like, especially when Isaiah is always like, wait, didn't we talk about this last week? And much like the days of this past year seem to bleed one into the next, each one feeling the same as the last, the pronouncements in Isaiah tend to get a little more fuzzy the deeper we get. Um, Isaiah is not just a book of prophecy, it's poetry, written in ancient Hebrew and penned by multiple authors set against a backdrop of political history that spans more than 200 years. And if that doesn't blow your Halloween alternative, prophet Isaiah costume out of the water, you probably need to hear this reading from Isaiah. Today we'll be covering chapters 28 through 35. It's a chunk of scripture that contains what some refer to as the six woes. Now, when we think of the word woe, We may put it in the context of, woe is me, for example. Woe is me. I don't understand Hebrew poetry. The next time you'll see woe in Isaiah, or sorry, the six times you'll see woe in Isaiah chapters 28 through 35, they all use the Hebrew word hoi, 
But if you're reading along in the New English Translate, New English Translation, or the NET with us, you won't see it at all. It's because Hoy has no perfect equivalent from Hebrew to English. So the translators use what they feel works best to convey the meaning. Each instance of hoy, not to be confused with oi as an oi ve, in this text marks the start of a new prophecy. It can be translated as ah, alas, okay, look. In English, woe refers to extreme sadness or big problems or troubles. But hoy is onomatopoeic, like a biblical biff, boom, or bang, more God, opa, less doom and misery. So why might we read this woe here with the measure of negativity? Is it the translator's fault? Not really. Records on the usage of the word woe in the United States show a sharp decline leading up to and following the War of 1812. But usage ramped up at the same time the doctrine of manifest destiny was taking hold of hearts and minds. It steadily increased during the years the nation endured, even celebrated the Indian Removal Act and the Trail of Tears the Amistad case and the founding of Liberia. It wasn't until the start of the American Civil War that the word began to decline in usage before slow and steady increase in 1989 that continues through today. One could say we have baggage attached to the word woe. And when we approach scripture, we give it meaning that it may not deserve. So what can we say? Where we can safely draw the line between our own experience and that of the original hearer is that woe often occupies the same space as warning. Woe is a literary device, the start of a new prophecy. And the six woes in Isaiah 28 through 35 are prophetic poetry that point to brokenness, bring a call to action, and warn against apathetic inactivity. Theologian Patricia K. Toll explains that this passage characterizes God as a divine person cherishing particular desires for humans, and especially for the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. These, dire, these desires concern both the nation's justice toward the, toward the vulnerable among them and their responsiveness to God. So here we go. Woe one. Talking about other people's problems is easier than facing your own. Isaiah 28, one reads, Woe, crown of the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, and the withered blossom his glory splendored on the head of the fat proud, stunned by wine. In 721 BC, the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom, Israel, or Ephraim as the text refers to it. To today's reader, it may seem distressing for half of Israel to have been taken over, but it was actually all of Israel. Israel and Judah had been divided for more than 200 years, which is about the same time span between now and when Arkansas was still part of France. So we don't really need to worry about any love lost when Assyria moved in next door. And that's kind of it. They were next door. Anyone who's been in a relationship can tell you that it's much easier to talk about your friend's problems than to confront your, your own. Even if you're dealing with some major stuff, it's easier to put it off, push it aside, or ignore it altogether when you have somebody else to complain about. But eventually, it's gonna spill over. I'm a fan of the, the film The Goonies. Um, seen it probably like 50 times, and I'm not exaggerating, probably being a little too conservative with that, that estimate. But um, in it, the character Chunk, under duress, confesses the worst thing he ever did was to take a bag of fake puke to the movie theater, lean over the front of the balcony and go, and dump the puke down onto the audience below. The people that got puked on started puking everywhere, getting puke on other people who also started puking on each other. 
So you get a false prophet bringing a bag of puke that everybody else takes as gospel truth and it spreads. Okay, look. In prepping this week, Laura, uh, with Laura, she said, I might be using the word puke a little bit too much, um, but it's the Bible that actually made me think of the scene in the Goonies where the Fertellis got chunked to talk. Because Isaiah 28, 8 reads, Indeed, all the tables are covered with vomit, with filth, leaving no clean place. And in Robert Alter's translation of the Hebrew Bible, which focuses on maintaining literary style, Isaiah 28, 13 reads, and the word of the Lord became for them filth, 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 vomit, 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 a little here, a little here. Okay, so everybody's puking on each other. The neighbors up north have a lot of problems, which is probably why they got taken, uh, taken by Assyria years ago. Isaiah has been talking about Israel's faded glory, its weak army, its drunken religious leaders, people puking everywhere and pets' heads falling off. Israel's so fake, so immature. They don't take God seriously anymore. And it really frustrates me when they do that because that's exactly what you do. Whoa, relationship problems. And now this isn't about the neighbors anymore. We have a problem that needs to be dealt with. By comparison, Judah was the more godly of the two nations and yet not so godly. There may have been a lot of emesis with their nemesis, but there was a whole hailstorm going down in Judah. Its leaders had hedged their bets against Assyria and made a deal with the devil to retain control and power. In chapter 28, verse 15, the prophet declares, we have made a lie our refuge. We've hidden ourselves in deceit. And they lost themselves in the process. They forgot who they were. Judah was so good at pointing the finger outward that it ignored the rot within. Rather than finding contentment in the nonsensical vomit that Israel spewed, claiming it was God's word, Judah had found a way to weaponize it. The nation thought itself more holy, but it was not. He cannot claim to be God's beloved nation and at the same time twist his words to defend the indefensible, bending to will what was once authentic, now shrouded in falsehoods, faith, promise, and exceptionalism. In Isaiah 18:20, which Laura now refers to as the saddest chapter in all of scripture, we read, the bed is too short to stretch out on and the blanket too narrow to wrap around oneself. There's no denying it. That shade's not a good look on Judah because there's no refuge, no place to rest, to stretch out or live free. When the people of God drunk on their own power, spew ill-formed snippets of scripture to justify the terror they bring to others. This is our history. Judah was not blameless in the sight of God and neither are we. Sometimes we romanticize God's chosen people as this extra biblical culture that can do no wrong. But Israel's woe here is meant to get them back on track because they were wrong. For us reading this today, it's a reminder that we can get it wrong too, but that we can still get back on track. But if we dig in and disregard a call to the humble truth of our own humanity, we are no better. Even more, when we create a biblical narrative around our national story, excusing injustice with a nationalized progressive revelation that repudiates reconciliation, it slaps scripture on hate and makes the cross a symbol as invitational as Christ's head on a pike. Whoa. 
This first pronouncement in chapter 18 ends with a parable about a farmer who can only plow so much before he must again sow. The writer reminds us that even when the grain is walked on or rolled over with the cart, not all of it is crushed. So stay faithful. Be the remnant. Don't point at Israel and say, it'll never happen here. I'm not capable of that. But my ancestors were different. Don't rewrite the culpability of the past with the precious blood of the lamb. Keep working. Trust what God has taught you. Speak truth to everyone you meet because better days are ahead. What are we going to do about it today? Talking about other people's problems is easier than facing your own. Woe to. Putting yourself before others comes at too great a cost. In Isaiah 29, 1, we read, Woe, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David can't, and year upon year let festivals make their round. Judah's not just getting called out now. Trouble's coming. 20 years after the Assyrians took Israel, they would besiege Judah. The Assyrians were strong. They'd taken over the Babylonian Empire, Israel, Phoenicia, and even parts of the Egyptian Empire. The writer here goes on to paint a picture of Judah being surrounded by its enemies, only to wake up from this fever dream. But the emptiness, the thirst, and the hunger are still there. Before this this time, King Ahaz of Judah refused to join a coalition of nations 20 years prior to push against the Assyrians' westward expansion. But going it alone came at a price. In order to find favor with the aggressor, Ahaz paid tribute with treasures from the temple and the royal treasury. And he built idols of Assyrian gods throughout the kingdom. Judah first. The text goes on to say in chapter 28, verses 9 and 10, You will be shocked and amazed. You are totally blind. They are drunk, but not because of wine. They stagger, but not because of beer. For the Lord has poured out on you a strong urge to sleep deeply. He has shut your eyes, you prophets, and covered your heads, you seers. God promises to do some pretty incredible things, but it doesn't matter because no one will ever see it because this vision, this proclamation is sealed tightly in a scroll. We read them now, but it is unlikely that anyone for whom they were actually written saw them. This week, John Ray shared a news article about something I thought was pretty interesting. So like long, long time ago, about 300 years ago, um, before you could seal envelopes by licking them, people had to figure out a way to seal up a letter to keep it private. One way people did this was to fold a single piece of paper in such a way that it became its own self-enclosed hamper evident envelope. Letter locking was super popular in the 16 and 1700s. Prepaid postage, not so much. Conservationists in the Netherlands have been holding on to a case of almost 600 undelivered locked letters for the past 300 years, not opening them because they didn't want to damage the delicate paper. But this year, scientists made it happen. They scanned one of the letters with an x-ray, unfolded it virtually, and used a set of algorithms to read it. It, it wasn't uh, super in, a super interesting read. It was someone asking his cousin for a certificate of, certificate of death for a family member. But the fact that they did this was pretty cool. Putting yourself before others comes at too great a cost. This goes into woe three. The posture of arrogance benefits from injustice. Isaiah 29, 15 reads, Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? 
who will know? Robert Alter writes that the focus of this prophecy is not an attack by hostile armies, but the perversion of social justice, which will now be restored. So back to that locked letter for, for Judah, back to the unread scroll. We've talked a lot about arrogance over the past few weeks. While the arrogant may hide their plans, edging bets on their own successes, God has sealed a promise. The sealed scroll talked about a day when the poor and downtrodden would find hope again. He makes a promise of tyrants disappearing. Those whose systems entrap the innocent and deprive them of justice will be gone. And even the ones whose morals have strayed in this backwards place of falsehoods and twisted truths will finally understand that the complainers will acquire insight, which is no small feat for those shouters on Facebook. The political and religious establishment may eschew it, even march clergy out to demonize it, building walls around future hope and telling us there is no need for justice, gaslighting those who need it most. But God's promise is already written and sealed away, so take heart. A posture of arrogance benefits from injustice. Woe for, hedging your bets without changing your heart is not the way to please God. Verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse one reads, woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Now that Judah is in the hot seat because selling its soul was not enough, it is sending an envoy down to Egypt to build an alliance. Many of the commentaries um, say that this, this showed la- their lack of trust in God. But in the context of the previous chapters, this distrust is pretty well established already. My take here is that they were fine seeing their neighbors carted off to Assyria, but when it came to them and their own, they were willing to pay whoever, whatever, in order to hedge their bets, giving no regard to their hearts. They never changed their ways. The writer implies that Assyria is going to win no matter what. And they eventually did, but in such a way that each side was able to claim victory. The victory at whatever cost is no victory at all, at all when God wants our hearts. Hedging your bets without changing your heart is no way to please God. Woe five, return. Chapter 31, verse one reads, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look onto the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Now they're not even trying. This is not a coalition, it's capitulation. They're distracting their people with stories about the neighbors, paying tribute to avoid pain, hiding it from their people, building an alliance with Egypt and none of it's working. Let's just straight up get help from Egypt. If Assyria has been fleecing Judah for 20 years, what do they expect Egypt is gonna require in return if this thing actually works? This, This plan requires nothing of them that God has asked. Humility, repentance, acknowledgement and ownership. There's a strength in admitting weakness that is lost on these people, and it's lost on a lot of believers today. We fear being wrong so badly that we're willing to go to any length to avoid the shame of humility, the scorn of justice, and the sin of hope. Our wrongness holds the key to our power, but it has been fleecing us for generations. Previous enemies of Judah went by different names, but at their core, the issues were always the same. 
Isaiah 31, six through seven reads, you Israelites return to the one you have so blatantly rebelled against. For at that time, everyone will get rid of silver and gold idols that your hands sinfully made. Return, woe six. Every nation will eventually fade away. Chapter 33, one. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. This is a condemnation of Assyria. It's, it's going to fall. Judah's enemies will crumble. Judah's problem was never with Israel's waywardness or Egypt's lack of viable help, or even, dare I say, uh, with the Assyrians. It was inward, written on the unseen scroll of their hearts. And when we fear losing our influence by humbly admitting the ugly truth that we may have gotten some things wrong, we rob a world in desperate need of hope and restoration, becoming the aggressor while playing the victim in the same breath, bending justice and truth in our favor while we serve up those who follow behind with a vomit moment platter and say, this is good, eat. No, no, woe to us. Hey, look, we have a legacy to build. And it extends far beyond this country, far beyond our lifetimes and well outside the egocentric flatland that is the American church. We are not the Lord's anointed one. Jesus is. We are not God's favorite people. We are among them. And we do deep and lasting harm when we engage in the work of inaction. In the end, after Assyria falls, Not that much may be said about it. Its legacy will be what it will be. What about us? What happens when this generation of the church is gone? What will future generations say about how we stewarded what God has given us? This week, we asked the question, what position do you hold now that you may have previously thought to be wrong? And As we transition into time of communion, the question we need to be asking is, where might we have wronged someone else, whether with unkind words, macro or micro aggressions, or inaction? On the night he was betrayed, Jesus sat down with his disciples for a Passover Seder that they'd probably had together before. As they were eating, he picked up the bread and said, this is my body. Eat it. Remember me by it. In the same way he took the cup saying, this is my blood, drink it, remember me by it. Lord, as we share the bread and cup today, let us, your church, be united in body and together in spirit. Open our eyes to the brokenness in our own lives so that we might look and look and work restore what is broken around us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.